Chapter 18 of Key Out of Time by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Key Out of Time, Chapter 18 World in Doubt. The day was dully overcast as all days had been since they had begun this sulken march penetration into the mountain territory. Ross could not accept the idea that the Fawana might actually command wind and wave, storm and sun, as the Hawaikans firmly believed, but the gloomy weather had favored them so far. And now they had reached the last breathing point before they took the plunge into the heart of the enemy country. About the way in which they were to make that plunge, Ross had his own plan, one he did not intend to share with either Ash or Carrara though he had had to outline it to the one now waiting here with him. "'This is still your mind, younger brother?' He did not turn his head to look at the cloaked figure. "'It is still my mind.' Ross could be firm on that point. The Terran backed out of the vantage-place from which he had been studying the canyon-like valley cupping the baldy spaceship. Now he got to his feet and faced inland his own gray cloak billowing out in the wind to reveal the rover-scale armor underneath. "'You can do it for me?' he asked in turn. During the past days the Fawana had admitted that the weird battle within the Citadel had weakened and limited their magic. Last night they had detected a force-barrier ahead, and to transport the whole party through that by teleporting was impossible. "'Yes, you are alone.' Then my wand would be drained for a space. But what can you do within their hold, save be meat for their taking? There cannot be too many of them left there. That's a small ship. They lost five at the Citadel, and the rovers have three prisoners. No sign of the scout ship we know they have, so more of them must be gone in it. I won't be facing an army. And what they have in the way of weapons may be powered by installations in the ship. A lot of damage done there, or even if the ship lifted. He was not sure of what he could do. This was a venture depending largely on improvisation at the last moment. You propose to send off the ship? I don't know whether that is possible. No, perhaps I can only attract their attention, break through the force shield so the rest may attack. Ross knew that he must attempt this independent action that in order to remain the Ross Murdoch he had always been, he must be an actor, not a spectator. The Fawana did not argue with him now. Where? Her long sleeve rippled as she gestured to the canyon. Dull as the skies were overhead, there was light here, too much of it for his purpose as the ground about the ship was open. To appear there might be fatal. Ross was grasped by another and much more promising idea. The Fawana had transported them all to the deck of Torgal's cruiser, after asking him to picture it for her mentally. And to all outward appearances the baldy ship before them now was twin to the one which had taken him once on a fantastic voyage across a long-vanished stellar empire. Such a ship he knew. "'Can you put me in the ship?' "'If you have a good memory of it, yes. But how know you these ships?' I was in one once for many days. If these are alike, then I know it well. And if this is unlike, to try such may mean your death. 
He had to accept her warning. Yet outwardly this ship was a duplicate. And before he had voyaged on the derelict he had also explored a wrecker freighter on his own world, thousands of years before his own race had evolved. There was one portion of both ships which had been identical, save for size, and that part was the best for his purpose. Send me... here. With closed eyes Ross produced a mental picture of the control cabin. Those seats, which were not really seats, but webbing support swinging before banks of buttons and levers, all the other installations he had watched, studied, until they were as known to him as the plate bulkheads of the cabin below in which he had slept. Very vivid, that memory. He felt the touch of Fawana's cool fingers on his forehead. Then it was gone. He opened his eyes. No more wind and gloom. He stood directly behind the pilot's web-sling, facing a vista-plate and rows of controls, just as he had stood so many times in the derelict. He had made it. This was the control cabin of the spacer. And it was alive, the faint thrumming in the air, the play of lights on the boards. Ross pulled the cowl of his Fawana cloak up over his head. He had had days to accustom himself to the bulk of the robe, but still its swathings were sometimes a hindrance rather than a help. Slowly he turned. There were no baldies here, but the well-door to the lower levels was open, and from it came small sounds echoing up the communication ladder. The ship was occupied. Not for the first time since he had started on this venture, Ross wished for more complete information. Doubtless, several of those buttons or levers before him controlled devices which could be the greatest aid to him now, but which and how he did not know. Once in just such a cabin he had meddled, and in activating a long silent installation had called the attention of the Baldies to their wrecked ship, to the Terrans looting it. Only by the merest chance had the vengeance of the stellar spaceman fallen then on the Russian investigators and not on his own people. He knew better than to touch anything before the pilot station, but the bank of controls to one side were concerned with the inner well-being of the ship, and they tempted him. To go it blind was, however, more of a risk than he dared take. There was one future precaution for him. From a very familiar case beside the pilot seat, Ross gathered up a collection of discs, sorted through them hastily for one which bore a certain symbol on its covering. There was only one of those. Slapping the rest back into their container, Ross pressed a button on the control board. Again his guess paid off. Another disc was exposed as a small panel slid back. Ross clawed that out of the holder, put in its place the one he had found. Now, if his choice had been correct, the crew who took off in this ship, unless they checked their route tape first, would find themselves heading to another primitive planet and not returning to base. Perhaps exhaustion of fuel might ground them past hope of ever regaining their home port again. Next to damaging the ship, which he could not do, this was the best thing to assure that any enemy leaving Hawaika would not speedily return with a second expeditionary force. Ross dropped the root disc he had taken out into a pocket on his belt to be destroyed when he had the chance. Now he cat-footed across the deck to look into the well and listen. The walls glowed with a diffused light. From here the Terran could count at least four levels under him, 
with perhaps another. The bottom two ought to be supplies and general storage. Then the engine room, tech labs above, and next to the control cabin, the living quarters. Through the fabric of the ship, shivering up his body from the soles of his feet, he could feel the vibration of engines at work. One such must control the force field which ringed this canyon, perhaps even powered the weapons the invaders could turn against any assault. Ross whirled about, his Fawana cloak in a wide swing. There was one control which he knew. Yes, again the board was the same as the one he was familiar with. His hand plunged out and down, raking the lever from one measure point to the very end of the slit in which it moved. Then he planted himself with his back to the wall. Whoever came up the well hunting the cause for the failure would be facing the other way. Ross crouched a little, pushing the cape well back on his shoulders to free his arms. There was a feline suppleness in his stance, just as a jungle cat might wait coming of its prey. What he heard was a shout below, the click of footgear on the rungs of the level ladder. Ross's lips drew back in a snarl which was also feline. He thought that would do it. Spacemen were ultra-sensitive to any failure in airflow. White head, bare of any hair, thin shoulders a little hunched under the blue-green lavender stuff of the Baldi's uniforms, head turning now so that the eyes could see the necessary switch, an exclamation from the alien, and— But the Baldi never had a chance to complete that turn, look behind him. Ross sprang and struck with the side of his hand. The hairless head snapped forward. His hands already hooked in the other's armpits, the Terran heaved the alien up and over onto the deck of the control cabin. It was only when he was about to bind his captive that Ross discovered the Baldi was dead. A blow calculated to stun the alien had been too severe. Breathing a little faster, the Terran rolled the body back and hoisted it into the navigator's swing seat, fastening it with the takeoff belts. One down, how many left? He had little time to wonder for before he could reach the well once again there was a call from below, sharp and demanding. The Terran searched his victim, but the Baldi was unarmed. Again a shout. Then silence. Too complete a silence. How could they have guessed trouble so quickly? Unless, unless, the Baldi's mental communication had been at work. They might even now know their fellow was dead. But not how he died. Ross was prepared to grant the Baldi's super-Terran abilities, but he did not see how they could know what had happened here. They could only suspect danger, not know the form it had taken. And sooner or later one of them must come to adjust the switch. This could be a duel of patience. Ross squatted at the edge of the well, trying to make his ear supply him with hints of what might be happening below. Had there been an alteration in the volume of vibration? He set his palm flat to the deck, tried to deduce the truth, but he could not be sure. That there had been some slight change, he was certain. They could not wait much longer without making an attempt to reopen the air supply regulator. Or could they? Again Ross was hampered by lack of information. Perhaps the Baldies did not need the same amount of oxygen his own kind depended upon, and if that were true, Ross could be the first to suffer in playing a waiting game. Well, 
air was not the only thing he could cut off from here, though it had been the first and most important to his mind. Ross hesitated. Two-edged weapons cut in both directions. But he had to force a countermove from them. He pulled another switch. The control cabin, the whole of the ship, was plunged into darkness. No sound from below this time. Ross pictured the interior layout of the ships he had known. Two levels down to reach the engine room. Could he descend undetected? There was only one way to test that. Try it. He pulled the Fawana cloak about him, was several rungs down on the ladder when the glow in the walls came on. An emergency switch? With a forward scramble, Ross swung into one of the radiating side corridors. The sliding door panels along it were all closed. He could detect no sounds behind them. But the vibration in the ship's walls had returned to its steady beat. Now the Terran realized the folly of his move. He was more securely trapped here than he had been in the control cabin. There was only one way out, up or down the ladder, and the enemy could have that under observation from below. All they would need to do was to use a flamer or a paralyzing ray, such as the one he had turned over to Ash several days ago. Ross inched along to the stairwell. A faint pad of movement, a shadow of sound from the ladder. Someone on the way up. Could they mentally detect him, know him for an alien intruder by the broadcast of his thoughts? The Baldies had a certain respect for the Fawana and might desire to take one alive. He drew the robe about him, used it to muffle his figure completely, as the true wearers did. But the figure pulling painfully up from rung to rung was no baldy. The lean Hawaiian arms, the thin Hawaiian face, drawn a feature, painfully blank of expression. Loketh, under the same dread spell as had held the warriors in the citadel courtyard. Could the aliens be using this Hawaiian captive as a defense shield, moving up behind him? Loketh's head turned, whose blank eyes regarded Ross, and their depths were troubled, recognition of a sort returning. The Hawaiian threw up one hand in a beseeching gesture and then went to his knees in the corridor. "'Great one! Great one!' The words came from his lips in a breathy hiss as he groveled. Then his body went flaccid, and he sprawled face down, his twisted leg drawn up as if he would run but could not. Fawana. The one word came out of the walls themselves, or so it seemed. Fawana, the wise learn what lies before them when they walk alone in the dark. The Hawaiian speech was stilted, accented, but understandable. Ross stood motionless. Had they somehow seen him through Loketh's eyes? Or had they been alerted merely by the Hawaiian's call? They believed he was one of the Fawana. Well, he would play that role. Fawana, sharper this time, demanding, you lie in our hand. Let us clasp the fingers tightly, and you shall be naught. Out of somewhere, the words Carrara had chanted in the Fawana temple came to Ross, not in her Polynesian tongue, but in the English she had repeated, and softening his voice to his best approximation of the Fawana sing-song, Ross sang. Ye forty thousand gods, ye gods of sea, of sky, of stars, he improvised, ye elders of the gods that are, 
ye gods that once were, ye that whisper, yet that watch by night, yet that show your gleaming eyes. Fawana, the summons was on the ragged edge of patience, your tricks will not move our mountains. Ye gods of mountains, Ross returned, of valleys of shades and not the shadow. He wove in the beliefs of this world, too. Walk now this world between the stars. His confidence was growing, and there was no use in remaining pent in this corridor. He would have to chance that they were not prepared to kill summarily one of the Foana. Ross went to the well, went down the ladder slowly, keeping his robe about him. Here at the next level there was a wider space about the opening, and three door panels. Behind one must be those he sought. He was buoyed up by a curious belief in himself, almost as if wearing this robe did give him, in part, the power attributed to the Foana. He laid his hand on the door to his right and sent it snapping back into its frame, stepped inside as if he entered here by right. There were three baldies. To his Terran eyes they were all superficially alike, but the one seated on a control stool had a cold arrogance in his expression, a pitiless half-smile which made Ross face him squarely. The Terran longed for one of the Foana staffs and the ability to use it. To spray that energy about this cabin might reduce the baldy defenses to nothing. But now two of the paralyzing tubes were trained on him. "'You have come to us, Foana. What have you to offer?' demanded the commander, if that was his rank. "'Offer?' For the first time Ross spoke. "'There is no reason for the Foana to make any offer, slayer of women and children. You have come from the stars to take, but that does not mean we choose to give.' He felt it now, that inner pulling, twisting in his mind, the willing which was their more subtle weapon. Once they had almost bent him with that willing because he had worn their livery, a spacesuit taken from the wrecked freighter. Now he did not have that chink in his defense. All that stubborn independence and determination to be himself alone resisted the influence with a fierce inner fire. "'We offer life to you, Foana, freedom of the stars. These other dirt-creepers are nothing to you. Why take you weapons in their cause? You are not of the same race. Nor are you.' Ross's hands moved under the envelope of the robe unloosing the two hidden clasps which held it. That bank of controls before which the commander sat, to silence that would cause trouble. And he depended upon Inland. The rover should now be massed at either end of the canyon, waiting for the force field to fail and let them in. Ross steadied himself, poised for action. "'We have something for you, star men,' he tried to hold their attention with words. Have you not heard the power of the Foana, that they can command wind and wave, that they can be where they were not in a single movement of the eyelid? And this is so. Behold!" It was the oldest trick in the book, perhaps on any planet. But because it was so old, maybe it had been forgotten by the aliens. For as Ross pointed, those heads did turn for an instant. He was in the air, the robe gathered in his arms widespread as bat-wings, and then they crashed in a tangle which bore them all back against the controls. Ross strove to enmesh them in the robe, 
using the pressure of his body to slam them all on the buttons and levers of the board. Whether that battering would accomplish his purpose, he could not tell. But that he had only these few seconds torn out of time to try, he knew, and determined to use them as best he could. One of the Baldies had slithered down to the floor, and another was aiming strangely ineffectual blows at him. But the third had wriggled free to bring up a paralyzer. Ross slewed around, dragging the alien he held across his body just as the other fired. But though the fighter went limp and heavy in Ross's hold, the Terran's own right arm fell to his side, his upper chest was numb, and his head felt as if one of the rover's boarding axes had clipped it. Ross reeled back and fell, his left hand raking down the controls as he went. Then he lay on the cabin floor and saw the convulsed face of the commander above him, a paralyzer aiming at his middle. To breathe was an effort Ross found torture to endure. The red haze in his head filled all the world. Pain. He strove to flee the pain, but was held captive in it, and always the pressure on him kept that agony steady. Let. Be. He wanted to scream that. Perhaps he had, but the pressure continued. Then he forced his eyes open. Ash, Ash, and one of the Fawana bending over him. Ash's hands on his chest, pressing, relaxing, pressing again. It is good, he knew in Valda's voice. Her hand rested lightly on his forehead, and from that touch Ross drew again the quickening of body and spirit he had felt on the dancing floor. How? he began, and then changed to, where? For this was not the engine-room of the spacer. He lay in the open, with sweet, rain-wet wind filling his starved lungs now, without Ash's force aid. It is over, Ash told him, all over, for now. But not until the sun reached the canyon hours later, and they sat in council, did Ross learn all the tale. Just as he had made his own plan for reaching the spacer, so had Ash, Carrara, and the dolphins worked on a similar attempt. The river running deep in those mountain gorges had provided a road for the dolphins, and they found beneath its surface an entrance past the force barrier. The Baldies were so sure of their superiority on this primitive world they set no guards save that field, Ash explained. We slipped through five swimmers to reach the ship, and then the field went down thanks to you. So, I did help, that much. Ross grinned wryly. What had he proven by his sortie? Nothing much. But he was not sorry he had made it. For the very fact he had done it on his own had eased in part that small ache which was in him now when he looked at Ash and remembered how it had once been. Ash might be, always would be, his friend. But the old, tight-locking comradeship of the project was behind them, vanished like the time-gate. "'And what will you do with them?' Ross nodded toward the captives, the three from the ship, two more taken from the small scouting-globe, which had home to find their enemies ready for them. "'We wait,' Invalda said, "'for those on the rover-ship to be brought hither. By our laws they deserve death.' The rovers at that council nodded vigorously, all save Torgal and Jazia. The rover woman spoke first. They bear the curse of Futka heavy on them. 
to live under such a curse is worse than a clean, quick dying. Listen, it has come upon me that better this curse not only eat them up, but be carried by them to rot those who sent them." Together the Fawana nodded. "'There has been enough of killing,' said Inland. "'No, warriors, we do not say this because we shrink from rightful deaths. But Jazia speaks the truth in this matter. Let these depart. Perhaps they will bear that with them which will convince their leaders that this is not a world they may squeeze in their hands as one crushes a ripe quaya to eat its seeds. You believe in your cursing, rovers? Then let the fruit of it be made plain beyond the stars." Was this the time to speak of the switched tapes, Ross wondered? No. He did not really believe that the rover curse or the treatment of the captives would, either one, influence the star-leaders, but if the invaders did not return to their base, their vanishing might also work to keep another expedition from invading Hawaiian skies. Leave it to chance, a curse, and time. So it was decided. "'Have we won?' Ross asked Ashlater. "'Do you mean, have we changed the future?' Who can answer that? They may return in force. This may have been a step which was taken before. Those pylons may still stand in the future above a deserted sea and island. We shall probably never know." That was also their own truth. For them also there had been a substitution of journey tapes by fate, and this was now their Hawaika. Ross Murdoch, Gordon Ash, Karara Treherne, Tino Rao, Tawa, five Terrans forever lost in time, in the past with a dubious future. Would this be a barren lotus world, or another now? Yes, no, either. They had found their key to the mystery out of time, but they could not turn it, and there was no key to the gate which had ceased to exist. Grasp tight the present. Ross looked about him. Yes, the present, which might be very satisfying, after all. The End of Key Out of Time by Andre Norton